and welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today I have somebody who has literally done it all. Um, let's just start there. But Antonio Hilton is joining us today. First of all, let's talk about this amazing picture you have behind you. Where are you with that dope <laughs> picture behind um, you? I'm in my living room. This is a, a collage that I made with a friend. Um, and it is uh, basically a bunch of photos from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that were printed originally in Ebony and Jet magazines. And I just picked out my favorites. And I, they're just a lot of beautiful Black women doing all the things that beautiful Black women do. Uh, so I like coming home and seeing beautiful Black women doing their thing. <laughs> that, that's what that is. <laughs> I, I'm almost left speechless by that response because I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. We start each one of our shows. It's kind of unique because we have our guests uh, walk us through the arc of their careers. And and you, you're currently a correspondent with NBC News and MSNBC. Um, and you had a story career as an author, podcaster, and a journalist. Can you walk us through each of your career stops since finishing the Harvard? <laughs> Isn't that how well, you say it up there? In that, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's exact. That's exactly how we all say it. Um, so when I graduated from Harvard, I uh, ten days after graduating, I moved to New York City to the worst apartment you could imagine because I had no money, and I uh, started out as a PA, a production assistant, um, working with um, two other correspondents and writers at the time. Um, one was working on a sort of feminist feminism and politics show, and her name's Liz Plank. And then the other was um, Darnell Moore, who, um, you know, wrote a lot about, uh, you know, the Black protest movement and uh, activism and his own childhood growing up in Camden, New Jersey. And I was working on these different docuseries with them. And at first, just, you know, carrying coffee and gear around as so many people in media do when they get their start. Um, but Quickly, I think I just built such a close and trusting relationship with them that they threw me into the field. I got the chance to produce and work on a number of um, episodes for them. And then Vice saw or caught wind of one piece that I worked on, invited me to a meeting. I didn't even know what was happening at the meeting. I, I didn't know I was auditioning for a job. Um, but then I got hired onto a Vice, uh, Vice on HBO. So I did that for about four and a half years. I covered uh, immigration um, civil rights and politics for them. Uh, so I spent a lot of time on the border. Um, I did a lot of stories in the Midwest at that time too. Um, and then I came to NBC about four years ago now, um, almost exactly to the day. And uh, I, I cover uh, politics. I cover, uh, and I really cover politics from the perspective of the sort of communities that are being transformed by so many of our, so much of our culture war, um, the way in which local politics is getting nationalized. Um, and I look really closely at what's happening to our public schools right now as sort of ground zero um, for a lot of the uh, fights over everything from what we're willing to remember about our country, the books that we're willing to read, um, and, you know, our, our beliefs about this democracy. Uh, I think schools are a really important place to tell that story. So uh, that's what I focus on at NBC now. But my other passion is mental health. Um, and that is where this book comes in, because uh, as close and as uh, like vibrant as my family has always been. I come from a like one of seven kids, big black family. We that was the one topic that was always off limits was talking about mental health, and so I think it made me as a journalist even more curious. Um, and so I wrote this book um, at, over the last ten years, just out of this it, it really at first as a passion project, um, and. Uh, 
So I've balanced my work at places like Vice and NBC with, um, you know, bringing this book Madness to life. And now here I am. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, that's what we call in the business a segue. Uh, let's talk mm -hmm. about your new book, uh, Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. First, explain to listeners what the Crownsville Hospital was and how did you first come across this and learn about it? I was just about 18, 19 years old. I was a freshman and I stumbled into a class about the history of psychiatry and I fell in love with it. Uh, but my immediate complaint or concern was that we were learning about the history of mental health care treatment almost exclusively from the perspective of white Europeans and white Americans. And I knew that something was wrong with that because I come from a black family with a long history of mental trauma. And I had family members who had spent time in mental institutions, in asylums like Crownsville, which is the hospital at the center of this story. And so I, I guess I went looking for it and I came across this institution that still stands, the buildings still stand to this day in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, not far from Baltimore. There was an entire generation of black healthcare workers and families that had memories of who worked at and lived at this institution and who very few people had ever sought you know, the chance to talk to them or, or just even record their memories. And the state had rescued and saved a bunch of the records. And so I realized there was an opportunity here. First, it was an academic one to tell this story and to bring um, Black people into the story of mental health care in America. But very quickly, what I found was this really rich and complicated and unbelievable tale that I think brings us up really to the current moment and helped me and I think will help other people make sense of why our mental health care system works the way it is, why there's such a lack of trust in so many Black communities when it comes to the decision to get therapy or to, you know, meet with a psychiatrist. Um, this story, this institution, it is this one place, but it tells a much bigger American story. Why? Answer that question. Why, though? So, I mean, I know it tells the American story and I suffer from general anxiety disorder. I'm actually going to the get my physical tomorrow. Shout out to fellas out there getting their yearly physicals. I'm not 45 yet, so they won't give me a colonoscopy and all that other stuff, but go get your physicals. And we talk about the effect that anxiety has on your body, et cetera. Um, but why is there such a, and you know, just some of the things you, you've learned from writing this book, but why is there such a, a antagonistic relationship between uh, discussing mental health in the black community? Well, I used to wonder the same thing myself, and I found it really hard to talk to my grandparents and my parents about what their concerns were. Why did they think this was only for white people? But what you find in Crownsville from its earliest days is that when there was mental health care for black people, it was harmful. And then in many cases, there really was nothing in the way of care for black people at all. Crownsville is created in 1911 by a bunch of white doctors and officials in Maryland who basically think that the reason there are so many Black Americans suffering in the years after emancipation, they, they, they basically think that Black people are unable to handle freedom and therefore unable to put up with yeah. the status quo to get with the program and to deal with the rigors of everyday life. So they want to build this institution to house them, but they don't want to pay for it. So they do something they never make any other group do at all in history. They force a bunch of Black men to come into the woods and build the asylum from the ground up before they can ever benefit from it, before they can really be patients. And it takes them three seasons to build it. They're bringing new people in day after day. Uh, and by the end of construction, you might think their work is over, but no, the state 
puts them to work running a highly modern farm. They rent them out for free to nearby private businesses, not unlike what we see happen in prisons today. Uh, and they run the laundry, they run the morgue, they are running all of the institution really to offset the cost of their own care. And so I think just that moment tells you a lot about the founding, the creation of this system and the way in which there was this resistance to really giving Black people what other patients were seen as deserving. And it also tells you a lot about how basically doctors were viewing Black people's health as a return to the good old days, a return to the plantation structure. Uh, health for Black Americans, in their view, was you know hard labor. It was their capacity to work more. Um, and you know when you see that up close and you realize this isn't that distant of a history, it's created in 1911 but doesn't close until 2004. The kind of labor I just described continues until almost the 70s. Um, you see then that like our parents and our grandparents lived through this, that there were institutions like Crownsville all over the country, just some of them haven't saved their records. And so when you see that this is part of a broader story and system, you start to see how that trust, trust was severed and why these kinds of perceptions, I mean, they, they permeate um, through the medical field today. That was you, you answered my next question, which was how long it had been open. That was one of the questions that when I was when I was flipping through, I was like, man, this is this has been a, a torment or a stain on society for a very long period of time. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. What do we know about how or what the state of Maryland did or has done for the families that were victimized of this hospital? Well, the short answer is almost nothing. Um, there, there has there's been no apology, really. There's been no, no reparations or repayment. Although some families have wondered if they might be able to make a claim that you know their loved one was an employee, a, an unpaid contractor, uh, you know, some kind of workman's compensation claim. Um, and so, you know, now that Governor Westmore is there, and Governor Westmore is very interested in this history. I actually met with him the other day. Um, there may be sort of a shift, a sea change in terms of the thinking and, and the communal commitment, because many of these people are still living. They're in their 90s, a lot of them. Um, they have children and grandchildren who know the history of what happened to them there, both as patients. And then this generation of Black employees who are the first to be able to integrate the place in the 50s and 60s, who start under really difficult conditions to start making these changes and to save patients' lives. And 
very few people have given them credit as healthcare workers who saved lives, who changed, um, you know, their community in the 50s, 60s and beyond. Uh, and so I think there's the question of what do you do? How do you repay the patients? But also who are the people who came in and did work in traumatizing conditions to save their own loved ones and neighbors who just haven't had their story told? And, you know, my hope is my my book, this book plays a role in giving some of those people the flowers, the celebration that they deserve, the thank you. But the question of what comes next in Maryland, it now falls on two people's shoulders, Governor Westmore and the Anne Arundel County Executive, a man named Stuart Pittman. And they say they're turning the land that still stands. These more than a century old buildings are still there. You can drive by them in Maryland to this day. They still stand um, and they want to turn it into this this memorial park and museum and and really sacred site. And so do they actually follow through on their promises and what's what happens next? I mean, I'll be watching as a journalist, but I think for black communities in the DMV area, this is something where they have their moment to stand up and and demand, you know, the kind of change that they think they deserve. What did you learn from the employees who I assume were also black, but also a part of the system that served so many black folks so poorly at the time? Well, in the early years, Black people were actually barred from being able to work at Crownsville. So from about 1911 till the end of the 1940s, it's all white. And a lot of the employees in that period. You you imagine how them folk were treating Black folk in the hospital there? You don't have to imagine because I have it in the book and it's rough. Um, I mean, they openly see their own patients as less than human. And so all of, you know, where one story that shocks people when I tell them is that celebrated civil rights organizer and attorney, Polly Murray, her father was murdered by a racist white guard at Crownsville, a story that, you know, hasn't been told very much. Um, And so it's not until the 50s and 60s when the state is really forced to allow Black people to come in and get some, at first, low-level jobs there. And they come in and they start doing these amazing acts of kindness, not because they have some technology or really a new medication that's you know, solving every problem. But these Black people know these patients. And I mean, know them. Like they went to school with them. They went to church with them. They grew up in their neighborhoods. And they start to do basic things like call their parents and their family to come get them and help them. They sew them clothing because they'd been denied clothing and proper showers and care by employees for years. Uh, They start to invite them to come back home and to have playdates with their kids to give them interaction with the outside world. And it's those acts of kindness that start to build a real culture of rehabilitation for the first time um, and start actually getting patients back out, back to their neighborhoods in Annapolis and Baltimore. But it also creates a very messy power dynamic that I'm sure you can imagine. There's these white employees for a while who've been there. They think they own the place. They've been there all along. A new generation of Black employees who know their patients and actually do love their patients. And then the Black patients at the very bottom of that. And all the kind of friction that comes with a power struggle where Black employees are trying to do what's right by the patients, but also trying to hold on to their jobs um, in a job market that, that is already incredibly difficult for Black Americans at that time. And so, you know, there's a generation of these healthcare workers in the DMV area who worked under very racist white supervisors who had to figure out ways to save patient lives in spite of the sort of broader systemic issues at this place. Um, and you know, very few people have told their stories. So getting to know them was an honor, really, and being able to write some of their memories into this book and the stories of the ways that they would um, 
you know, take care of patients, sew for them, bathe them, detangle their curls. After some of the patients hadn't been washed in years by the time they arrived, they would throw parades for them, take them camping. Um, Those are some of the most beautiful moments of this book that really lift you back up after you've seen the horror and and just the way in which, um, you know, the hospital had for so long been working as this place that just like black people would be disappeared to. Mm. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's black people who in many ways are their own heroes in this book. You obviously interviewed a lot of people from the book for this book, excuse me. What did you learn from the families that, and survivors of Crownsville and how did the broader black community surrounding the hospital view it? Did they view it as a source of jobs as a place that you should avoid sending family to? I mean, what was the complicated? All of the above. It's all of the above. So in that area of Maryland, Black people were being so severely, so systematically denied jobs that there were really two places for a long time that sustained families in the mid 20th century. And that's Crownsville and the Naval Academy nearby. Um, And so almost every Black family to this day, if you talk to them in Baltimore and Annapolis, most of them have a connection to a loved one, a cousin, a grandma who worked at Crownsville at some point. Um, or who started their nursing career there and got their training there. Um, And that's because there were very few options. A lot of these places, like there was a hospital in Annapolis that just outright barred Black people from working there at all for a very long time. So there's a dependency in terms of, you know, the economic need of the Black community there. But because they know the history of how white people had been treating them there, because they know that there are patients that are on these horribly filthy and overcrowded wards, that it's an uphill battle and a fight, there's also this sort of boogeyman and and scary tale about Crownsville that gets out there throughout the community. Um, and so a rumor spreads for many years that there are these night doctors, um, these white doctors at Crownsville who at night will come out and scoop your children or scoop your cousin off the street. And it might sound like a, you know, a childhood tale, something you say to someone around a fire, um, you know, at a campsite. But it turns out, as I went through the records and I actually gathered the oral history, that in some ways there was a lot of truth to that. That, you know, at one point I tell the story of a Black man who ends up at Crownsville for years and years and years. And it's not until one of the first Black women to get there gets to know him that she finds out that her white supervisor had picked this man up off the street in Baltimore because he heard him speaking in a British accent and believed that there were no British Black people. And so he thinks he's insane. And play acting as a British person. So he gets brought to Crownsville, stuck there for years. And then this black woman gets to know him. And it turns out he was born in London and was a jockey and had come to them to come to America and had fallen on hard times. And it's for her, this sort of earth shattering moment in which she realizes that she is working at and part of an institution that has been essentially stealing black people from their communities, some of whom have real mental health diagnoses some of whom don't and um, and very much don't. And so she and a bunch of other women just make a commitment to taking care of those people, to finding out where their relatives are, to getting them out. Um, and it's, it, but there is that first, that heartbreak, that horror, that realization um, that some of these rumors, the, the, the fear that had spread were actually very much rooted in reality. And I'll tell you on a personal level for me, you know, coming from a family where I had the type of parents and grandparents who would say, you know, therapy isn't for black people. You go pray about it on Sunday. Right. I think a lot of us can relate to that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you when I saw this and I realized, you know, my grandmother used to live in Baltimore. Like my mom was born there. 
like these are stories they would have heard. These are rumors they would have heard. And so when you realize that and you sit with it, you have so much more compassion for people who have felt excluded by and pushed away by these systems. And the fear makes a whole lot more sense. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth, plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This sounds like a movie. Have they come knocking at your door yet? <laughs> no comment. I'm, I'm, we'll see oh, what happens. You could have but I, will, I will say this, and I think you'll, you'll agree with me on this. I found it very interesting since this book came out, and I've been starting to hear from readers who are sharing their own mental health care journeys with me who are telling me about their black families connections to these institutions all over the United States. And, you know, I was able to even make the New York times bestseller list. I think it's interesting because people were warning me before my book came out. Oh, no one wants black stories anymore. No one wants to read this stuff anymore. There's a big swing away from this. You know, companies are divesting from this type of programming. I just think it's interesting because that's not what we're seeing in, in the numbers, in the readers. People still want the full richness and um, the depth of storytelling that's out there about Black Americans and our lives um, and our heroes and our villains. I mean, they, they want it all. And that's what I'm seeing. Who's the audience for this book and what did you want readers to take from it? Well, in a way, this book is for everyone in the sense that I think that um, if you are an American of any background, creed, or color, I think most people understand in this day and age that our mental health care system is failing us. Even wealthy people are stuck on waiting lists, stuck without access to inpatient facilities and treatments because there are so few good ones available in every community in the United States. 
And I think especially coming out of the pandemic, people are angry, they're frustrated, they want to talk about mental health care, but they don't always have the right tools, the right language, and they don't always know their history. So my hope is that this book is for everyone and that it gives people a starting point and understanding of why our system works this way. Um, and I also think that it's a story for everyone because it's Black American history, but everybody's implicated in it. And yeah. everyone's in this book and plays a role in in how our mental health care system was built up and then it was destroyed. Um, and so, you know, it's a story that that focuses and centers a Black community, but with a message that is for anyone who cares about the state of mental health care today, who wants to imagine a better way forward, who believes that we all, families of every background and socioeconomic, you know, level of access, like if you believe that there's something better out there that we could all advocate for better programs for our loved ones, this is a book for you. And many of the amazing Black doctors and nurses who have been trying to scream solutions and ideas that they have from the rooftops over the last several years, they're in this book and you can learn from them and maybe start to incorporate some of what they argue we could all do and practice and create tomorrow. Um, and it'll actually lead to change. A lot of it isn't rocket science. A lot of it is just about building better communities, funding schools and parks and safe spaces for children that would do so much to mitigate the current mental health care crisis that we're seeing. And so my book is for anyone who previously thought they needed to throw their hands up and just accept that we have a mental health care crisis, accept that we have a homelessness crisis, accept that we're always going to have a population of Americans that just seem to be suffering so much in public. If you are tired of feeling that way, if you want to believe that there's something better, this book is for you. One of my last two questions for you, the next one's probably more important, but I always ask readers or excuse me, authors this book, how did writing this book change you, if at all? It changed me and it changed my entire family. So at the very beginning of this, when I was just a teenager, my family was very anti-therapy, anti-psychiatry, anti-mental mental health. Um, and they were very, uh, there was a lot of stigma and shame around family members of ours who had suffered. Um, one of my dad's cousins had been killed by a cop in Alabama in the middle of a mental health crisis, something that I write about in the book. And there was all this fear about that. I mean, we literally would like hide his family photos because people didn't know how to talk about it, how to remember it. Ten years later now, this book is out. My family has been a part of the book. I've interviewed them. I've shared my findings with them. Most of my family is in therapy. Uh, all of mm -hmm. us talk about our emotions all the time and support each other. We have unearthed family photos and memories of people who in the past had sort of been hidden. And we've decided that we're just not going to live with that kind of stigma and shame that we're going to love on people who are struggling instead of, you know, telling them to be quiet or to pray about it or to, to try to keep the family secrets. Um, and that has healed so many broken relationships in my family. It has helped so many people live happier and healthier versions of their lives than they were before. Um, and I really think that writing this book was healing for me. But also it invited some people in my family to have conversations about mental health with me. And because it was another story, it was another place, it was another point in time. I think it helped them see that, you know, if you're struggling with your mental health, you are so not alone. And especially as Black Americans, we come from a long lineage of and, and very complicated and messy story here. 
And if you come from a family like mine that has had these hidden stories or these, these stigmas or shame, um, I think when you see that so many other people have been through the same things that you've been through, it's actually very healing. It's very calming. Um, it's very, it, it made me feel more rooted. And, um, and so this book, I think, has made me like a better sibling. It's made me a better child. It's made me a better friend. Um, and I think it's helped me learn how to, to talk to people and have so much more compassion and have so much more belief in my, you know, my relatives or my neighbors or my loved ones who, who are struggling. Um, and so my hope is that it, it, if I can just give a little fraction of that to other families like mine, you know, that would be, that's really, that's really all I can ask for. <laughs> I mean, that's dope. I mean, this book is dope. You are an amazing person, amazing soul. You poured a lot of yourself into this book. How can people find the book? How can people buy the book? And um, how can they follow and keep up with you? Well, the book is available everywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your, your local stores. I always tell people to support your local stores and small businesses. So if you have an indie bookstore near you, drive over there and ask them to grab you a copy of Madness. You can also rent it from libraries and libraries are great community spaces for people who want to rent both the physical book, but the audio book as well. Yeah. Um, and so there are Re options. Who, who's out reading there. It? You didn't cop out and let somebody else read it. You read it, right? I read it. I mean, this is a, a book from my heart and my soul. Yeah. It's my family. So I knew I had to read it because there's just no, I don't think there's any other way to tell, tell the tale. Um, so I put a lot of heart and soul into that audio book. And so if that's your thing, I encourage you to listen instead of read um, but it is out there and out everywhere now. And if you want to learn more, uh, you know, you can go to my website, which is just AntoniaHilton.com. You can even find the sources in the book and look at some historical records there. Um, or you can connect with me on any social media. I love talking to people and answering their questions about the history of mental health care. Antonia Hilton, thank you so very, very much for an amazing book for pouring your heart and soul into this book. And thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast about madness, race, and insanity in a Jim Crow asylum. Go get your copy today. Thanks, Bukhari.